and Lorenzo. And this is the Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the teen Utilo, Tom Fitzgerald, and I'm here with the little Utilo, Lorenzo, my lovely husband. Hello. How are we doing, Lorenzo? Wonderful. Wonderful. Same yes. here. Yeah. It's another chatty episode of the PSO. We're just going to jump around a few things uh, on the pop culture landscape. We're going to talk about a couple of trailers that we've already talked right. about, but uh, Lorenzo has opinions. <laughs> and uh people think he, people think he doesn't get a chance to air them but uh that is entirely untrue we're also gonna um dive into two recent movies and and we're not going to spoil them for you but we are going to very much encourage you to watch them yeah. uh which is passing um the rebecca hall directed movie starring tessa thompson and uh ruth nega uh based on the novel written the 1929 novel and also The Green Knight, which was out in theaters briefly this summer um, and is now available to, you know, to rent and is, I'll tell you right now, my favorite film of the year, 2021, oh, wow. hands down. Um, it, it's one of my favorites. I agree. It is. And uh, we're just going to dive into a little bit of that. Uh, if for no other reason, than the costume design is just some of the most absolutely, absolutely beautiful amazing. I, I, yeah. I have seen all year. Okay. Um and that's it. We're just going to talk about all that stuff. And we I promise we won't spoil anything. Um, but first, I know we talked about it on this podcast, I believe a couple of weeks ago when the teaser trailer came out. But the um, full trailer for Aaron Sorkin's biopic of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz called Being the Ricardos, starring Nicole Kidman and uh, Javier Bardem. The, the full trailer dropped. Uh, people have a fuller picture of these actors in these roles um it remains a con- such a controversial choice that aaron sorkin wound up giving it yes, a yes. very defensive interview to the hollywood reporter defending the casting i'll say this it rem- and we said it we did say this in in our post and uh, despite my joke uh, lorenzo is fully on board editorial with everything that gets written on the site we consult on all this stuff but um our our take was that all along was that this was a problematic casting for a whole bunch of reasons. And I, I reiterate, we don't think that people need to look exactly like the person they're playing. But when there's such a separation of physicality, of type, uh, uh, it becomes kind of a, an issue. And Nicole Kidman is, you know, just in so many ways, her personality, her physicality is just not really appropriate for Lucille Ball. Right. Um, and similarly, Javier Bardem, uh, for a lot of reasons, is just a very different kind of man. It's, it's not that he doesn't look like Desi Arnaz, is that he is a different kind of man. It, yeah. That is the same thing with Nicole Kidman. It's like, yeah, you're a, you're a redhead. You're a beautiful redhead. But, and, you know... But that's where the similarities end. You, it's a whole different type of Latin from a whole different part of the He's of the very world. masculine yeah, it, but and it's, thick, it's Javier different. Bardem. And I'm like, yeah, that's not... I mean, Desi Arnaz was pretty. He was a pretty boy, right. you know, Latin lover type. And um, Lucille Ball was as beautiful or more beautiful than Nicole Kidman. But... Um, you know, Nicole Kidman is a size zero in 2021 because that's <laughs> what actresses are expected to be. And she has maintained her face because that is what actresses are expected to do. And I don't criticize her for either of those right. things, but it makes her not right for the role. It, it's very hard for me to say anything, actually, or or to judge, because my idea of Lucille Ball is always the, the character I love Lucy, because that's what I saw for a long time, right. a long period of time in my life. 
I only watched that show. Um, I never saw her movies or anything. I, I did now because TCM is showing them all the time. So yeah. I was watching a ton of them. Um, so you get a better sense of her, the person, the actor, right. uh, as opposed to the character. So to me, I don't know about the other people out there, but to me, <laughs> it, it's hard to separate both. And so I always I look at Nicole Kidman and I'm like, hey, all right, it's hard for me to say you're doing a good job because maybe I'm I'm analyzing the whole thing or, you know, based on, on the character. On Lucy Ricardo. I can honestly say that I am not because, or I don't believe I am. Um, for one, I grew up with all of her shows. Like she had like four TV shows and, mm -hmm. and there were, they were syndicated all throughout the seventies and eighties. Uh, it was here's Lucy and the Lucy show. I think it was three different shows. So I saw versions of, and in fact, I, in my introduction to her was probably her color sitcoms in the 60s, not I Love Lucy, which I, I was probably older when I started watching them. Um, just because it was color mm -hmm. and because it was closer to my childhood that it, that it didn't seem so far away, that it was the kind of, if, if on any chance there are people too young to understand this, um, back, you know, pre-1980, like there was, you know, your television options were very limited. And I've thought about this a lot recently about Gen Xers and why sometimes we, we get impatient with millennials who don't understand who it just came out this week. It was a big discussion that people didn't realize Karen, uh, McCulkin was calling McCulkin's brother. And it was all these millennial, uh, culture. Really? Writers. Uh -huh. Yes. And they were like, Oh my God, I didn't even know that. Writers. And uh -huh, oh my God. one was a writer for Vanity Fair. <laughs> and I, I got so annoyed by that. And then I remembered, I started working my way through it, and I, I started thinking, you know, um, we as a generation um, were the last one, or one of the last ones, I think older millennials, this is true of as well, you, what you watched on television was a decade, you know, when you came home from school or in the afternoon or whatever, right, right, it right. was always a decade or two older than you. Right, right. Uh, we were just used to this. I grew up watching Gilligan's Island, which went off the air, I think, before I was born. Um, the Brady Bunch, which I knew like the back of my hand, went off the air when I was a toddler. Uh, stuff because you watch that stuff for years and years and bewitched, right. bewitched, yes, bewitched went off the air yes, before yes, I was yeah. born. And I, I would come home or maybe right after and watch it, right? Yeah. And I knew those episodes like that. Right. And our whole generation was like the Munsters and and the Adams Family and whatever. There's a whole range of television shows uh, that we were exposed to that were were from our parents' generation in many ways. And but we watched them anyway. We yeah. watched them and wound up knowing them better than our parents did because we watched them so obsessively. Um, there is no uh, counter to that in younger millennials and Gen Z. There is no, the culture isn't like that. So they don't get exposed to stuff that is any older than them. Um, and right, I, I don't right. mean to get into one of these no, like, but it, damning but it, but generational I mean, things, but they're as they're not as curious as we were about these things. And, and things just get erased. Like uh, there's a lot of stuff on Netflix that then they drop it. They, they're, there's, they're no longer available. Right. Um, so you don't have a chance to see, you know, stuff from the past because it, they keep changing. Right. 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 Uh, what they are uh, featuring or, or, you know, promoting. Um, so it, it's hard because sometimes you, you, you try to find a, an old movie or an old show. You really have to do your right. research to find it because you can't find that's a whole on other, Netflix or any other place. Like uh, that. I mean, yeah, I sometimes we should do a podcast about that, uh, about that whole topic, about fading culture and generational understanding and that sort of thing. But it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, like if you, I, I've, I've done it. But if you, if you, if you check, if you check a movie or or whatever online, it sometimes it's not available. It's just not available. Right. It. 
It, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, taking us back to being the Ricardos and Lucille Ball, I um, so I, I wasn't, I never had a problem separating her from uh, Lucy Ricardo because I saw her other roles and they weren't exactly like Lucy Ricardo. Not only that, but I remember her uh, late in her life giving television interviews where it was very clear that she was not her, the, her character. She, right. she was, first off, a much drier more sarcastic woman right. than, you were right. than yeah, any of the characters. I think the interviews, you made a very good point. Yeah. I think watching the interviews, yeah. Uh, yeah, so she's a lot drier and more sarcastic and biting. Uh, not only that, all the stories that have come out in the years since, the understanding of what it was like for her behind the scenes, she had to be very hard-bitten. She had to be, uh, I'm sure, in the parlance of the day, she was called a bitch. I mean, she would probably be called a bitch today, too, because she was in charge of that show. It all was on her shoulders. Um, and she was a uh, revolutionary television businesswoman. Right. She 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 changed. Television. She founded that yeah. studio. She formed the basically sitcom format. She uh, she and Desi developed syndication as we know it. Uh, so huge, just just this huge cultural figure and important business figure um, that goes way beyond Lucy Ricardo. And I do know that. Maybe I maybe not everybody does. Maybe it's because I studied film and television in college, but I did know this about her. Um, so I am not comparing Nicole Kidman to Lucy R- Ricardo. In fact, I said that when she was first announced, that my my problem with this is I'm not sure she can do that behind the scenes, Lucy, that really hard-bitten former chorus girl that mm-hmm. Lucy was. Right. Um, but I will say this. Look, it's eerie looking at her in the role. I mean, it just is. I'm just going to say it. I think Nicole is beautiful, I think. But when you put her in period makeup as a person, as a, iconic person it's just eerie it doesn't work she's very 21st century in how she looks um but the story does look really interesting right and um if it matters and i'm trying to work my way through how much it actually matters that she makes me think she's lucille ball but if it matters there are times when i'm like okay she gets a little closer to it than i would have really i would have predicted there are a couple line readings in there where she she says the one line are you cheating on me and it sounds exactly like lucille ball it's like dead on so okay i'm gonna give her the benefit of the doubt the the storyline is so right up aaron sorkin's alley it's so perfect for him that i have a feeling he'll do well by it now uh he gave that Hollywood Reporter interview, and he one of the things that I, this really, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's becoming a habit now. That, well, the that thing they is that they he come said, out and defend whatever. The thing is that he said about the show was he said, you know, I love Lucy. It's a show that you know, let's face it, no one would consider was funny today. What? Yeah, that's not true. And I just, I mean, no, that's not true. Maybe you're not the guy to do this story if that's what you think, because no, if you true. don't understand. The the masterpiece level of her comedic ability yes. and how she wielded uh-huh. it. If you don't understand that about Lucille Ball, I don't understand why you think you should be telling her story. That show is still funny. It is broad, slapstick comedy. Of course, it's not sophisticated, it's witty comedy. You still laugh at that. She yeah. is the standard by which that comedy is still judged. Every female comedian is still compared to her 70 years after her so-called heyday so it i mean i'm not usually the type that gets all up on my high horse about but i was like man that's why would you say that in promoting this film like what 
I don't mean, I'm not, I'm actually, I haven't watched I Love Lucy in years. Right. It's not like I'm some crazy fan of it. I have to go back and fan of watch it. it again. But um, I recognize, there's just no denying how how well done that show was, how revolutionary that show was, and how much of that came down entirely to her. So that's just a bizarre thing for me to say. Anyway, I'm talking to him to say for him to say. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I, I will watch it. I'm curious. Uh, it, it does look like a great production. Um, and I'm curious to see how they'll handle all the behind the scenes, you know, stories. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I, I've, I've said this uh, before here on the podcast that I, I don't necessarily have to see someone who looks exactly like I agree. The I don't. I, uh, I agree. Um, you know, I, I've, you just have to do a good job. Um, J.K. Simmons is cast as William Frawley, who plays uh, Fred Mertz on right, the show. Right, exactly. And he doesn't look. He doesn't like look him. like him, but I'm like, right. you know what? I can see it. I, yes, he's going to be yes. so good in that that it doesn't matter that he doesn't look like right, him. Right. Um, and similarly, um, I think Nina Ariande, the actress's name is. She's very brief in the trailer where she is Vivian Vance. And it's jarring because Vivian Vance and William Frawley were very far apart in age. It was one of the things she didn't like about her role on that show. But I believe they're even further apart in the casting, and it, it sort of sticks out in that brief moment. But again, she nails Vivian Vance so well that I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see that the right, rest of right. her. The thing about, and this doesn't look like it's going to be that film, but... Those four people, it, it is really fascinating when you look at the history of those four people. Because that show came down to those four people and pretty much nobody else. Right. Desi, Lucy, and, you know, Fred and Ethel, and that's it. Like, there were people who guessed it on the show, and in later seasons... There but were, it's all about them. That's all you remember. So they were in this yeah. little box, this fever box, where they were on this insane production schedule. They were insanely popular, and it was just the four of them. Four very different people, two of whom were going through a really bad marriage you know they were just right, right. fiery marriage i can only imagine so it's happens. almost like yeah, fleetwood yeah. mac recording rumors you know where you're right. just like i would love <laughs> yeah. a, a movie about just that that foursome in that box doing that job and and somehow thriving and did they know they were creating a masterpiece or did they just were they selling philip mars cigarettes each week you know like that's what i would love to say and i don't think sorkin is up to that um but we'll see. We'll see. Anyway. I, I, th- that is a great cast, and he is a good director for that kind of material. So it's really hard for me to, th- to think that this would be a disaster. It, it looks worth your time. Right. That's how I, I take it. it, whether I agree with it or not. Um, now, mm. just this morning, the trailer for And Just Like That, I know. the Sex and the City um, reboot follow-up series, which has been widely derided. And even we, when it was first announced, we were like, "Are people who wants this? Who really wants this? I know, but all, I, my, all my bitching is evaporating. <laughs> well, um, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean... I haven't been big on the revival train about taking all these shows and, and right. returning to them, you know, 20 years after they end. It's, we're just doing it a lot lately, and it feels like culture eating itself. Uh, which it is, but um, I wasn't totally opposed to this idea because those are rich characters, uh-huh. and there was a potential of interesting storylines there if they didn't make it really shallow and stupid like the movies. So it's encouraging to see in this 50-second clip, I was like, well, that doesn't look like the movies at all. No, that, it doesn't. It looks like life in New York today. Right, right, like right. wealthy people in New York, don't get me wrong, and kind they're of all like, a bunch of wealthy white yeah, women. Yeah, I, I question how much they, they, they grew or developed or whatever in terms of characters. We'll see. 
That's uh, what I want to see. Yeah, and I think a TV series give give them the opportunity to show that. Yeah. Uh, instead of movies, movies are just like I don't know, th- pretty things to look at. Now it helps that that trailer. I don't even know if Big is in the trailer. I think he might be in it for a split second. But the trailer does not focus on whatever freaking romantic issues Carrie's going through. Right. If the series is focused on that, I'm really going to be like, whatever. I don't care if they're having problems or not. I don't care if they're divorced or not. Um, but I don't want th- what what's going to happen to Carrie's love life to be the focus of the series at this point. That I think would be terribly regressive. And right, right, not right, right. that you know, not that you stop looking for love at 55 or her, whatever her age is. But um, I really would it find it depressing to see her, you know, dashing around the city looking, you know trying to find the right man i don't know i really hope that's not not it. not that there's nothing wrong in doing any of, of that not. but as a character or as someone who went through all this for many many seasons exactly you expect something you know a little evolution there <laughs> exactly so um, i know there were scenes of her I mean, kissing some other guy right, and, but right. I, and i'm not saying there's go ahead and have those stories i just don't want that to be the entire right, series right. um if there was any flaw with sex, well, there were plenty of flaws with sex in the city, but one of them was in late, by later seasons, it became Carrie and her backup singers. And I never liked that version of the show. I really liked the show when everyone had, All, an, yeah, everyone had, had a had storyline. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, you know, in, in, as the show progressed, a lot of the, well, I was just say Miranda and Charlotte basically paired off successfully and it was rocky, but they paired off and they had families and children this was, you know, towards the end of the series. So I think in that instance, the focus just went towards Carrie that much more. Her her right. her dating became that much more intense, and, and she moved to was Paris, just moving around, Mikhail yes, yes. and it was, you know, it just became more and more about her and less about them. And I'm really hoping that's not the approach. They're in their fifties now, so we should be able to see a range of lives, which right. includes motherhood and perhaps successful careers. Well, they, they showed Charlotte um, with her kid, uh, kids, I believe, or her daughter, you know, on stage doing something. So right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting to see more of that, that, you know, right. The kids and, and their relationship and so on. I read somewhere that Samantha is just going to say that they no longer, they lost touch or whatever. They lost she touch moved or to whatever. London. Yeah. And I, you Which know, it's fine. Whatever. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. That happens to people. It's right. Not, exactly. Um, not everybody's friendships last for their entire lives. In fact, it's actually exceedingly rare to have friendships like that. So, um, I'm I'm curious. I, I I'd like I really to say it. And like yeah. as we said when we know when we watched it this morning, we were like, wow, there are more people of color in this minute long thing. Yes. Than in the they're entire. Trying, yeah. yeah. They're trying to. So you know. that gives me the idea that they're trying to cor- correct. Yes. Because um, you can't do it. It was like Friends in the '90s. You can't do television shows set in New York City and only show white people because right. that is not what New York City is. You can't do that. So. Um, it's just not real life in New York. I mean, it's not. You, you can't tell there, me there that, is no white section in New York City. Right, There's right, no right. Such thing. I mean, you, 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 if you live in New York, work in New York, or whatever, you it's will every have, color of the rainbow. Yeah, you right will have a friend or a coworker or somebody right. who isn't your color. Um, you know, Pardon your skin me. color. So, yeah, so. Uh, yes, and the show did mean a lot to us back in in the day, um, in the '90s and early 2000s. We were there every Sunday oh night my watching God, it. We worshipped it. Um, quoted it, still yeah. quoted, named our cat Amelita after Amelita Amalfi, the yes. uh, hooker with a passport. Weep, darling. Weep, darling. It's a tiny little penis. We know the line. That's exactly how to use it. Uh, fantastic <laughs> <Susa>. character. 
<laughs> that won't be necessary. That won't be necessary. Oh my God, we just bore you guys. You but... can bring your little laptop. <laughs> but we know all the yes. Yeah, so yes, here. we're deep in on Sex and the City. I mean, we I haven't looked at them in years. Why would I have to? You can watch them streaming now. But we have the entire DVD collection. Yeah, oh my God, we have all of them. Yeah. All of them. It's like forty DVDs to, because <laughs> we bought them in like two thousand and seven. <laughs> yes. Um. But yeah, we're we're in, and it's kind of hard to say no. I want to see what they're doing. I want to see how they. Ch- I hope they change. If they haven't changed, I'll probably tune out after the first episode. Right. If it's true. just them being shallow about restaurants and dick size and shoes, I'm gonna be like, okay, whatever. No, I I think it's a little more than that. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, moving on to passing. Passing. Yes. Uh, we the thing is that we cover passing the actors uh, on the red carpet for such a long time that I felt like I I knew them already, and I was waiting to you know dying to see the movie. Yeah. Because uh, I had read so much about the book and the story. It's based on the 1929 book by Nella Larson, it tells the story of two um, light skinned black women, one in Harlem or ones in Harlem. And the other one is married to a white man and passing for white. And they are old friends. And the way their stories interact and everything. And, um, you know, we don't get much modern examination of passing, the phenomenon of passing in our entertainment anymore. But at the uh, back in the day, there was, I mean, there were stories that were just obsessed with the idea of, of people of color passing for I'm white. Just, I'm just, because I went online to check about the book, to know more about the book. I'm shocked that the book was actually written uh, back in in 1929, because as you said, you just said it in the 20s. This it, this was such an issue. There was a fascination by yeah, it, and exactly, it, I mean, part exactly. of it was driven by uh, fear. Uh huh. Part of it was, um, you know, I guess misguidedly aspirational, like oh, if only all of us could pass for white people, kind of thing. Right. Um, and also, whites fascinated with with black people. That's go, what I mean. White go, people were yeah. were scared of it. Going to Harlem to like <clears> to. Just observed him. Yeah, we wrote about the Harlem Renaissance in our book. Yes, we did. It was one of the my favorite periods and places to visit in all of our research. And um, it talks about that. The whole the the film does a really good job, I think, of silently indicting uh, the upper class white people who came there and treated it like a zoo. Yes, which we'll get into all of that. It stars Ruth Nega as the uh, white passing friend and Tessa Thompson as the light skinned. uh, I guess you would call her upper class black woman from Harlem. She's yes, married to yes. a doctor. They have a lovely brownstone. Um, and it should be noted here that the film was directed and written, adapted by Rebecca Hall, who is uh, a British actress who I'm sure you've seen her in a bunch of things. I'm going completely she's, blank she's now. Great. She's great. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know until it came out uh, in the uh, press for this this film that she is herself biracial that her grandfather was a white passing black man um and that she's largely the same background of black and dutch that nella larson the author of the book was so it was a very personal i think um, it's fascinating i I think it's fascinating as a director to to you know embrace that and 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 direct a movie right it's just just, and i'm like when when there's pictures of all three of them on uh, together where it's ruth nega and tessa thompson and and uh rebecca hall who i in my whiteness will just say she still presents as a white woman to me right but i still think it's just this beautiful representation of like shades of color like right, right. these are women of color and they're telling a story specifically about being women of color who are light if not white passing um there was a bit of criticism um 
people, I, I don't know exactly where, but I read that uh, people thought that uh, T- uh, Tessa Thompson and, and Ruth Nega weren't white enough for the rules. Can we talk about that? Yes, I, that's yes, one of the yes. things I wanted to talk about today, which is I think now I, I, I you listen, you're talking, we're as always, right, right. Uh, we're two white guys talking about our perceptions and our understandings of these things. So we cannot speak on behalf of anyone and we're not speaking from personal experience. So, but here are my observations of the film and the story, which is that, um, well, first off, when it first, when the castings, when the pictures first came out of them in those roles, uh, there were a lot of black critics and writers who said, who clocked them immediately, who were like, well, they, they, you know, they don't look white. They're not white pants. Right, right, right. And then further, um, when the when the film went into wider release, it just became a broader topic when the film came up and the idea that neither one of them could really pass for white women. And I think that is at least partially the point. Yes, it is, um, I think. Is that uh, there is a blindness, and that blindness is um, largely white-centered. I think uh, the film doesn't... What One of the great things about this film is the subtlety and the grown-up quality of the film, where it, no, it does not over-explain anything. In fact, it doesn't explain anything it just lets things happen in front of you and it expects you to pick up on the nuances of which there are every scene is nothing but nuance unstated nuance um so the nuance i'm getting at here is uh white people are blind to it they because race is about perception more than anything else and uh, there are scenes where they are placed was one very specific scene where they are both placed in an all-white setting and it's very clear that the white people in the room are just blind to seeing them any because other way. They wouldn't be there. They're supposed her, to be mind, there. Exactly. In there wouldn't be there. Here's there were, two fair-skinned women yes. in the place where only fair-skinned women are, right. where only white women are. So there's no reason to question it. You, it's not about looking at the spread of their nose or the size of their lips or anything like that. It's it's simply about perception of them as white, regardless right. of how they actually look. You see the these two white. I mean well-dressed women you know yeah. and then you believe what they, you see they belong then, yeah they, they belong, belong. Yes. there's no reason to question that now the flip side of that is that um there's a brief uh mention that ruth Negga's character who is married to a white man in passing um she will not hire any uh black servants hmm. and that is and when that is mentioned ruth and tess thompson give each other this knowing look and it's again not stated but the implication there is she doesn't hire black servants because they would clock her they would see that she was black they would know exactly then there are scenes with her later partying in harlem and at one scene where she it is only it's an all-black party it is mentioned that it is an all-black party and um it, nothing is said, but it is clear that everyone in the room perceives her as a fellow black person. There is no, right, like, what is right. this white woman doing in this room? Because they all, this is actually addressed in Larson's book in a way that the characters find ridiculous. And I believe it comes up at one point in uh, Tessa Thompson's talking where it's, there is no magical thing. And this is what I wanted to get into is the way the book, it's fascinating me, the way the movie, the story isn't about queerness, but it also is about queerness. Right, right, uh, it's right. a yes, when, when you I get into that. a discussion about passing, it's hard not to talk about things like trans people who pass or who who attempt to pass or what. Uh, there's conversations about passing that sound exactly like two right, trans right, women having right, a conversation, right, right. and I don't think Hall was. I think that was deliberate on Hall's part, especially because there's there a, is a subtle an, an, an assumption that they they, they they yeah they yeah. they. 
they did something in the past or they are attracted to each other in a way, right. uh, but it's very subtle and yeah. uh, not talked about much, which I love. And it's the same thing with queer people where sometimes there is no, gaydar isn't a thing, not really. It's not a measurable thing. And there is no magic to it. It's simply a way of, at some point you recognize like, there's some little raise of the eyebrow or flick of the wrist that makes you realize that's one of us. And Tessa Thompson sort of makes that point at one point in the scene. There is no magic to it, but there is something sometimes that you can pick right, up on right, with right. people that you know, you recognize yourself. I have to say, I've, I've, I'm I'm obsessed with Ruth Nega. I absolutely love she's her as, a, as an actor. I think she's fast. I just love her. Love her. Yeah. So she is great right from the get-go, from right from the four, first five seconds of the movie. Hypnotic. Uh, you just, my God, she is this goddess. And then... I have to say, Tessa Thompson, she gets so much better. Uh, she keeps getting better and better. I, I really liked her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just loved her. And she had a much more difficult character yes, to play. Because yes, it's yes. all interior. Yes. yes. And because um, her character, it, like, in many respects, Ruth Negga's character feels more modern because right. she's just unbound by and a lot more, of it's easy not easier but it's more flamboyant exactly so. but whereas tessa and i i would imagine this probably gets into sort of respectability politics and being an upper class black woman in in harlem and the, and propriety and she is she's very proper uh and and formal in her speech way more so than she's also very insincere all the time because she's she's putting on a facade in her life right uh and th that is the bizarre thing is that um they're, both these women are kind of judging each other for the facades that they put in their life. And they're both like one of them is passing as white and the other one is depressed and uh, stuck in a life where she can't be herself. You know, when you think so about it's it, fascinating. it's really well done. Yes. When you think about it, they're playing so many roles like uh, in, you know, doing everything, pretending to be anything but themselves. And sometimes right. most of the time, both characters. Uh, and you can see that. Because uh, Irene has uh, Irene is the one in, in Harlem, right? Correct. Irene is Tessa Thompson. Yes, and Claire Irene is Ruth Nega. has a maid, and you can tell that dark skin maid. Yeah, and you can tell that how uncomfortable it is sometimes. Right. Uh, and at the same time, as you mentioned, Claire doesn't want to have a maid because she's afraid that the maid will, you know, know find out that she, right. she's and black. yet she's more comfortable with. Um, with Tessa Thompson's maid than yeah. Tessa Thompson in because it's the one house where she can be black and not be judged for it. Right. So And when Claire goes to Harlem, I think it's fascinating uh, and it's an interesting part of the movie to see that, you know, sh you spend your whole life pretending to be white, but but you're still black and you love being black and and then you long for that and you right. go back and you and you just want to be Which with Which was it. very common in passing right. literature of the time. It uh -huh. was very and, and off I mean it was sort of the tragic mulatto character of which she's probably a pretty good example. Uh so I, I take Without uh, claiming any expertise in that in that literary trope or anything like that, I feel like uh, Rebecca Hall took that sort of tragic mulatto character and uh, modernized it in a way that asked further, you know, expanded, right, right. Uh, allowed her to judge Tessa Thompson just a little bit, um, allowed them both to express themselves in a way that that. Um, evoked queerness whether it was about queerness or not like i said i didn't there is there is a an undertone of attraction in the story that is not acted upon but when i say queer, i really mean they sounded like trans women talking they sounded exactly like trans if you've ever seen when i saw a lot of documentaries when we were researching the book 
trans women back in the day and about passing and about the decisions and the choices that they make to pass and mm-hmm. the and the fears that they have and the benefits that they have. Um, and we're and I mean there were you could take that the scene of them talking about her husband and play it exactly the same way and claim that they were both trans because I've seen documentaries of women who were passing uh, who trans women uh, who were married to men and not. Um, and they had no, you know, according to them, they had no idea. This was back in the day. Um, so I just love that that she used that as an allegory without uh, wandering away from it. It is a story about race. No, and I'm not trying to appropriate anything from it. It is very much a story about uh, race um, within uh, within the black community and how it is defined by different people. Um there's hardly any white characters in it. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård is in it for five minutes as Ruth Negga's husband, and he's revolting because he's a, I know the character. He's is a terrible horrible. racist, a monster, yeah, uh, and a monster. And all credit to him for taking that role. Apparently, he said yes to it in order to get the film financed. Yeah, he's a friend there, there of are, hers. There are stories out there that talk about how hard it was to get money to make the movie, right. uh, finance the movie, and um, because uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, right? Was supposed to play the... There's a white uh, celebrated author who who loves to come in and party uh, with party with the Negroes in, in Harlem. And um, he's part of the story, but not a major part. He's actually a fairly small part. But um, Cumberbatch couldn't... And Cumberbatch, I have to admit, would have been perfect Would have been it. perfect. He yeah. really yes, would. Yeah. But uh, I guess scheduling... I think it was Doctor Strange 2. He couldn't do it. And they brought in character actor Bill Camp, who I actually love Bill Camp. Uh, I think he's really great. As I said to Lorenzo just before the mics went on, if you've watched it and, you, and he made any sort of impression on you in the few scenes he did, he is the janitor who taught... Uh, Anya Taylor Joy how to play chess in the Queen's Gambit. The, that's the amazing. range of he's his. Amazing. And he's yeah. playing like this erudite, snobby, white New York right. author in this film. He's just a very, very good uh, character actor. And he was great. And there was just a small scene with just a really illuminating scene where Tessa and him are, are quote unquote friends. So they tease each other and they have very blunt conversations about race. But the overhang of the entire conversation, this is so false. She could never be in your world. You would never let her in. You are visiting the zoo and pretending like you're friends with, uh, you know, the exhibits. And but you're going to leave. Right. And she, I I feel, does know this. I don't think she's naive. She's very. Yeah. She's she's sarcastic at every now and then. And, 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 you know, and she's careful about it. But she, she, you know, throws a line. She's very knowing about what what's going on. I also thought that her relationship and her lines, her dialogues with her husband were very good, too. Uh, Kind of real. Yeah. And the husband you know, saying a few things that really were really interesting. And if you were a couple, you understand that, right. okay, well, that's how you talk to your partner. Right. Um, uh, I just, and getting into the filmmaking, like Rebecca Hall for uh, a debut as a director, this is a remarkably lush and confident work on her part. Um, I cannot get that jazz piano riff out of my head yeah. that uh, becomes such a motif I throughout it. I have to watch it. it again. It's so beautiful. Um, the way... The way the street outside that brownstone is Beautiful. photographed throughout the seasons of the year, uh, little touches where, you know, it's a Harlem brownstone and it's like 1928 or nine or whatever. Um, it's a gorgeous building, uh, and I guess you could look at it and like, wow, that's probably a fifteen million dollar really building right now. But there are little touches that in the in the art direction, and it's. 
They're wealthy for Harlem, but they're not New York wealthy. Right, right. And that's what I'm trying to get at. It's not shabby or anything like that. Extremely well-maintained, well-appointed home. And, but Someone with money, but not but on not, the There is a level. difference yeah, between yeah. black money and white money. Right. And there's just subtle things in the art direction. that it's, It doesn't make it look ghetto or run down or anything like that. Everything is very subtle, as you said. Yeah. Uh, it's not in your face. I mean, there are so many aspects, so many little things, social, uh, political messages. Uh, the fact that it's... You, 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 you know, they talk a little bit about how the the black community moved from the South to the North right. and to the big cities and uh, to be, you know, to have a better life. And they talk about how horrible, you know, it still is in New York. And and, and they talk about prejudice and, and the, kid, right. the kids going to school. And I mean, they want to move. Her husband wants to move right. out of America completely and move to Brazil. Um, I, I just want to. Just visit the scene where uh, Claire and Rini see each other in that tea room in oh that white God. hotel. The beauty of the way that was shot. That's when I was like, oh, man, Rebecca Hall. All right. She she knows what the hell she's doing. Um, it should be noted that uh, it's a black and white film. And uh, there's, you can unpack a lot of reasons why that would be. The first being that, uh, you know, it's the 1920s and that's the easiest way to evoke the 1920s. But I tend to think it also helped her... Um, as a director to um, maintain this illusion that, that, that Ruth Negga was passing for white. If you right. shoot her in black and white and you ramp up uh, or actually ramp down the contrast so that she is in some scenes blindingly, <laughs> blindingly yeah, that's white. That's what I love about the movie. Yeah. Uh, in the tea room is when we meet her. Uh, and I just love that scene is, ah, uh, mm, that is such good directing. And I'll explain why, because she, uh, Tessa Thompson's character is out in the heat and, uh, she sees people collapsing in the street and she's been shopping all day in Midtown. And so she decides to go into an all white fine hotel into their tea room to cool off. Um, I found it very interesting the way this was presented because, um, according to Rini throughout the story, this is that she does not pass for white in her life. She doesn't, it's not something she does. Later in the story, she claims it was the only time she ever did it, which is interesting to me because she undertakes it without a thought. She just smoothly walks in. I'm like, that really? I'm supposed to believe you've never done this before right, because right. you are smooth as silk walking into this hotel. I don't want to say she's uber confident. This is what I mean about the nuance of that scene. There's there's a lot of unspoken stuff in the film, and this is all unspoken as she navigates this space, which is not for her. It is for white people. She gets taken into this tea room, um, which is the contrast. It is so overblown, the lighting, the way it was shot, that it is just this blindingly white. You'd think they were in a snowstorm. There's almost no contrast. Just white, 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 white. And there's almost nobody in the room. There's like two or three other people in this large tea room, which means that you are feeling it from Tessa Thompson's point of view, which is, I am this dark, dark figure against this blinding white background, and there's nowhere for me to hide. Right, right. If she had walked into a crowded room, she could take a table in right, the corner, right. and but she is sat by like a maitre d' smack in the middle of this massive room, blindingly white light. Um, and it's full of white people. So the, suddenly, without any tension, with it, that you can feel, I mean, without any words, you can feel the innate tension of that moment, that she is navigating that moment, and she feels herself just adrift in this literal sea of whiteness. Right, right. Just a, just that scene alone is like... Absolutely whoo, beautiful. I mean, wonderful as you, as you said, the, 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 the fact that the, the lighting keeps changing gets lighter and darker. Well, she... 
I'm sorry. I just I'm, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. Uh, and you can, and and it, that's exactly what you're saying. It's sort of like a representation of how you perceive uh, their skin color, right? And and it goes with, with the scene, with the situation, whatever dialogue, whatever they're talking about. And you can see them that sometimes they look whiter, sometimes right. they look darker. Yes. Uh, and it's just just black and white uh adjustment like you like as as if you as if like you did in life like they did in life you have to adjust yourself to whatever code switching yeah yeah to whatever um, place or situation you're in um and again to contrast it that there's that scene in in the tea room in the beginning which is just this blinding sea of whiteness and then there is a semi-final penultimate scene at a harlem uh basically a house party in harlem Uh, and it is all black. When a white person shows up to the party, it is pointed out to them that they are the only white person there. And that is pointed, you know, that is. Mm-hmm. And that scene, when you compare the way that the lighting in that scene with the lighting in the white hotel scene, it's it's a much richer, more textural lighting. Um, Hall uh, worked with a cinematographer who knew how to light and shoot uh, black skin in all its ranges. So you could have Ruth Naga and Tessa Thompson right, right. in a scene. And they look. Kind of full yes. of much darker skin because yes, yes. there is nobody in the movie lighter skin than them except white people like every other dark person is notably darker skin than them and this is commented upon throughout the film my point being that the the lighting changes in order to to uh it becomes richer it becomes much higher contrast in that party scene so that you can see all those shades of black skin Uh, so that they're not washed out because no one in that party is trying to wash out their skin. So it was all that really thoughtful stuff. Um, uh, I'm not going to give away the ending, I but I like the book. The ending is done, is shot in a way to be uh, ambiguous about exactly what happened and what motivations drove what happened. And I'm not going to give anything away except to say, I feel that Rebecca Hall made a deliberate choice and that even though... The actual scene itself is... I, I did rewind it. I think a lot of people did because I was like, what the hell just happened there? When you when you follow a character all the way up to that scene and the interiority of what's going on in that... and her, the motivations of that character and then you see what the, how that character reacts after that scene is over in the final scenes of the film, I don't feel there's any ambiguity about how that character acted. I think Hall is being fairly clear mm-hmm. about what Larson apparently in the novel was a little more ambiguous do you agree or disagree without yeah, giving anything I, away i kind of agree yes yeah me too but yeah i actually think it enriches the story but i think ambiguity works there as well i agree i agree because they're in a way they're all guilty um there's just a lot of people in that story who are stuck in systems right stuck in behavior feeling guilty or guilty right 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 it just you know it it plays well Um, so yes, passing. I would highly recommend oh my it. God, yeah. Very I thoughtful can't wait to watch film. It again. Yeah, uh, very beautiful film to look at. Uh, the music is beautiful. It's she takes a very light touch with the music. She doesn't overdo it on the jazz, but it's enough to to put you in the time and place. Oh, one other quick thing that I actually really did like. Um, I don't think Hall did much in the dialogue to. Um, to modernize it. And it sounds exactly like dialogue written for a novel in 1929. There are times when they talk and I'm like, that that just sounds like it came right out of it. Like, That's how... It's not very natural. It's not entirely natural dialogue, but it sounds like it was written by right, a novelist right. in 1920. And I actually really, really liked that because the story itself... Hall is going into some rather dated tropes. Like I said, the tragic mulatto trope and everything. The very idea of exploring... Passing is not... 
not generally a thing anymore. It's it's considered a, a you know a byproduct of uh, worse racial conditions than today. Um, but it has a complicated past and a complicated history behind it. And I, I think she did interesting things. She stayed within the realm of that time, within the realm of how that author saw that time. Right. But she was able to look at it through, I think, more modern eyes. Not judgmentally, but just to show as many sides of I think I think she made great choices. I do, too. Uh, I do, too. I, I do. And um, I love the movie. And yeah. I, like I said, I can't wait to watch it again and just pay attention to everything. Yeah. All right, The Green Knight. Now, uh, The Green Knight was out in theaters this summer. It took a long way. I think it was delayed for two years because of the pandemic. Before yeah. the pandemic or something, yeah. Um, and it took a long route. I knew it had buzz for the longest time. I had heard about it at least 18 months ago through film Twitter and film critic circles. Um, it is the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is a chivalric poem from the 14th century, an Arthurian poem, or you know, King Arthur. Um, if you were an English major, you probably had to read it at one point in college. I believe I did read it in college. I know I read... I read a long time ago. I was yeah. obsessed with the Sir Arthur stories when I was a kid, and I had the storybooks when I, I was a kid. I can see that. Yeah, I totally... <laughs> um, a, lot of, a lot of kids who were into superheroes were also were into also, that yeah. and into Greek mythology. Like, oh, that's cute. Yeah, I checked off all three. So, um, I couldn't wait to see it, uh, for what little I'd seen from previews and pictures and everything. It looked absolutely beautiful. Dev Patel, uh, is, was cast as Sir Gawain. Um, so I rented it, I think a month or so ago when it first became available. And I just was like, oh my God, this is so, maybe three weeks ago. This is so beautiful. It is my favorite, I think my favorite film of the year, but I didn't watch it with you. Right. And then um, you told me it expired, yeah. like it was a 24-hour rental, whatever, like that. And I, just the other night, I was like, come on, sit down with me and watch this, because I really think you will like this. And um, I wound up buying it, because it was on sale on Amazon Prime for only seven ninety nine just to own the digital copy, because uh, I really can't wait to watch this with a Christmas tree in the background, because oh, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it is oh, my God. a perfect Christmas movie. And it's not, I don't mean that in some heart, right, right. heartwarming sort of way, but it is a movie set in medieval times during two Christmases. Um, and there's, it's not overwhelmingly, there's not a lot of Christmas iconography in it, but it is Christmas themed. Um, and I think it it's fantasy themed and whatever. <clears throat> it's just, pardon me, what I love about it. It's such a beautiful it, movie. It's it is a beautiful absolutely movie. Absolutely beautiful movie. It's, this is well-trod ground. You put a knight on a horse with right. a sword or whatever, and it's it's Game of Thrones, it's Lord of the Rings, it's a million other things. And there have been a million Arthurian uh, adaptations, and I was sitting there laughing during the first half of the movie thinking about Monty Python. But <clears throat> So this is very well-trod ground, and I have to say, what is his name, David Lowry? Or David Dan? Lowry. David Lowry, the director, who is American. That surprised he, the hell know, out of me. I he's American. But, but he, he, kind of- he did something completely fresh to me it does not look like uh, to me i don't feel like this looks like other fantasy films while at the same time feeling very much like one no i mean he could have just done something very modern you know because that's what people like these mm-hmm. days but no he he just he just cre- I, he presented something that it's more or less i i i joke because i was like this is like a pop-up story book or you know it's just a like a punch and judy play yeah or like a 3d book you open and these characters come out yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. i felt it was just like cartoon not cartoon but these 
cut out characters, you know, playing a, a, a scene. And it was just it was just so beautiful. That was what was so charming about it was that and this is much, you know, to tie it back to the previous film, like Rebecca Hall adapting Nella Larson's book and making it sound like a 1929 book. Um uh, the the Green Knight is based on a 14th century chivalric poem, right. and it feels that way. <laughs> it feels that way. It, and, but and when I say that, I mean narratively, because it, it listen, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get some sort of beginning, middle, and end. You know, it, things are gonna happen that don't make any sense, um, because that's how those poems are. Like you wander through the woods, and suddenly. You encounter someone Something and it's magical, weird and it's yeah, magical. Yeah. And then you some you have this encounter and then you move away. And, you know, it's sort of like the hobbits and Tom Bombadil. Right. Uh, Tolkien was, very, he was actually obsessed with this poem and a lot of uh, Lord of the Rings was spun out of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, and it is that sort of thing where you're just, okay, you wander through the woods and here's a magical creature and you do a task for them. And then you just sort of leave that and you move on to something one, yeah. else. And you you know he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking like why is all this weird shit happening to me because that's not what the story is um but it's just what, weird because he did a ghost story which is a fantastic movie but yeah. it's so completely different you know and then he goes and, and he's not afraid to go there just you know the sets are very empty and and it, it and it's so real it's like it's you know it's like how people lived at the time things look dirty and at the same time they they're very luxurious right. uh, fabrics and all that and colors. So right. it, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful approach. Risky, I'd say. Yes. Um, like I said, it, there's no... Uh, it, it's just a series of scenes, basically, that illuminate... A, and, again, I, I love that he didn't remove this part of it. If you're going to do a chivalric poem from the 14th century, you are going to come up against a lot of Christian morality play stuff. And it's all there in the mm -hmm. film. It is a series of moral tests that Gawain right. has to go through. And some of them are very Christian in tone, which means he is tempted by sex. And at one point, he is tempted by same sex. Uh, and that's actually in the original poem. Um and it doesn't shy away from him having, uh, you know, like being not repulsed, but, you know, shocked and right. that sort of thing. Um, uh, the the story is, and I think this is largely true of, of Arthurian stories in general, is that it is um, a battle between uh, Christianity and paganism all throughout the story. Um, he's on this quest that uh, constantly brings up, I mean, he leaves with a, a, a shield with... Um, the Madonna, you know, mother, you know, Mary painted on the front of the shield. It's exceedingly Christian in tone. The king and the queen, Arthur and, and, and Guinevere, wear literal halos on their heads so that when they sit on the, on the throne together, there is no mistaking that they are religious icons. Right. Um, while at the same time, his own mother is, and this is, I'm not giving too much away here. His own mother is Morgan Le Fay, which is a slight deviation from the original poem, but Morgan Le Fay was Arthur's sister and she was uh, a sorceress. And uh, Sarita Chowdhury plays his mother. <sighs> she is phenomenal. Uh, you might she remember her has from, any lines. from Homeland. She was in uh, Homeland and she was in Mississippi Masala. Oh my God. She's amazing. Yeah. She's and, perfect. perfect. Oh my God. Perfect. It's, uh, the great thing about her in this role is that. Uh, she commands so much of the story. And she has barely she, no lines. Right? It's not that she doesn't have any lines, but they are very sparing. Her most amazing work is done without any speaking at all. And she, I just love the witchcraft scenes. I love the way they were yes. so, shot. 
if you know, I kept thinking of uh, Lord of the Rings, of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, not because this film reminded me of it, but because I feel like this film sits as a okay. Here's how we're going to do this twenty years later. This is a different. This is so. Um, it had a lot of the same ideas behind it. The sense that um, these characters and Jackson did this with Lord of the Rings that these characters live in an ancient and raw world. Like the world is raw. But also, there's a really old civilization underlying all that rawness, right. raw and wild, uh, and it's like that. It's it's this idea of England, even though it's never named as England, um, as this just mystical, bizarre, raw country with wild magic. Well, you know, you could just encounter it randomly. Um, but also, every castle looks five thousand years old. Right. <laughs> and I remember thinking that the first time through, I was like, well, this doesn't quite jot. Like, why is the chapel, why the chapels wouldn't look that old in 800, you know, 800 AD because they weren't even around that long. But that's a choice. It's a, And it's this very Tolkien-esque choice. Like, Christianity really was less than a thousand years old at this point. Um, but these people are stumbling through a, a landscape of thousand-year-old churches crumbling down around them. And... Um, that gives it that fantasy, that no time sort of feel to it. The uh, the costumes are oh there is God. no oh there's um, nothing. There's like no it. historical. Uh, <laughs> no. Re, there's nothing. There's literally nothing. They went in their own direction, and yet it feels so right. It doesn't feel like some crazy disco version of of medieval clothing. Um, the costume uh, were designed by Malgozia uh, Terzanska. Yeah, Polish uh, costume designer, and just, she's fantastic. And she says that there's, you know, they're not historically uh, accurate or anything. No, she just got some inspirations uh, and um, went to a lot of museums in in London and, and Poland. And oh yeah, the motifs are there. Like there are people, especially there are those people in the background with the pointed hats. They yes, look just yeah. like the people you see in like medieval etchings and stuff. There, it definitely has the feel of it, but for instance, the king and queen, who are never named as Arthur and Guinevere, but clearly are, um, and they're elderly in the story. They're they're near yeah, death, they're, the two of them. Right. Um, they wear these these hammered metal crowns. Like everything feels almost Bronze Age. Like there's no jewelry. Nobody's wearing diamonds in this story. Everything feels very very old and primal. But so, rich. But it, it, at, it, rich at the same time. So yeah had these hammered metal crowns with no jewels in them, a lot of crosses stamped into them, and then a halo on the back of their heads, also hammered metal. Then they wear these robes, and in her case, it she is covered head to toe in like these little milagros, these little charm, metallic charms that are all right. over her body. Um, and he is covered in these plates, these like stamped Votive, metal right? plates, yeah, that depict all these different scenes, and they're all over his robes as well. Now, there's no real... There's reason. no real medieval right. analogy to that, but my God, it looks amazing and it feels right. It just feels right for this magical, pagan, mystical kingdom, which is Christian, but still has all these, you know. And it feels like they're carrying all that history, all that background. Exactly. And, and it feels druidic, it feels Celtic, yeah. it, it feels Viking. Um, uh, the Green Knight himself, I mean, the design on that character, my God, absolutely gorgeous. Um, he's basically a living tree with a face in it, um, <laughs> riding horseback. Yes. I mean, and let's talk about the cloak. Of course, everyone talked about the cloak. Deb uh, Patel wears, wears this velvet. Amazing cloak. Um, uh, yeah. 
I'm sorry, goldenrod, like mustard, golden right. cloak, which is apparently mentioned in the story, in the poem. He does, right, right. Ye- the yellow cloak is and mentioned. And the costume designer, was, they were trying, she was trying to come up with the right uh, shade of yellow or gold, and they went with the, uh, I didn't know, Gorse Irish uh, flower. I don't know anything uh, about yes, it. Yes, yes. So they went with that tone of yellow. Uh, it's a wide flower um, in, in Ireland that I didn't know. I had to Google and, and it's a beautiful flower, by the way. But that's the idea, that that shade of yellow and right. gold. And, yeah, but. and he wears that cloak for the entire film. And it's, I just love, oh my goodness, I think I could write a, a whole bunch about that cloak. It's, I've written, we've written before about, about, Art, costume articles that travel with a character and take them through various scenes. And like I said, the story is a series of morality plays and each one teaches him something about himself and about the world. And so he's up and down all throughout the story. And the cloak, it's really interesting. Sometimes it's filthy and you can't see it. And sometimes it's clean. Yeah, it goes with the with the ambiance, I think, in it a way. It feels religious. Yeah. It yeah. feels like you're you're clean now, you're dirty now, you're clean now. Yes, yes. And that's what I mean about, it just feels old. And sometimes it, it's around his neck, sometimes it's it's, it's to protect right. him like a like yeah. a, a, a like a, I don't like know a like blanket. a blanket yes. yeah uh, it 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 changes so much yeah. and yet it's the same piece of cost yeah um, it's not going to give you a satisfying arc or ending because that is not the kind of thing it does I, there are two points in the story where I think he the director is very smart about essentially showing you alternate endings showing you an ending for, right. the, for this for this character That's how I feel, yeah and then sort of rewinding and, and taking the story forward again and this is largely done the second time it happens it's more or less treated as a vision like a character sees their own future um but the first time it happens it's not presented that way it's presented literally like oh well that character died oh wait no that character's not dead and I felt it was alluding to the fact that these we're in these people live in a story, and these stories are old, and they're retold many times. Yes. and there's very different yes, versions yes, of yes, what happened yes. to Gawain. Depending on who tells the so story, so he, yeah. he literally inserted different endings for him right. into the story, which literally takes you out of the story because you're like, "What the hell was that?" And remind you that it's a story, and also remind you that it's an old story, and it's probably not accurate because it's been retold. It, it, there's a really creepy monologue in the beginning about someone saying, I will tell you the story as it was told to me. And there is this understanding that, you know, some of this might not make sense. Some of this right. is going to contradict itself. And he's, he's not heroic in the classic sense, but this is an eroded story that has been told many, many times. Just real quick. When, when we going back to the costumes, when we, when I said, you need to sit down and watch this with me. And there is a scene <laughs> I was like, I think you're going to love this. And you were dead silent through the whole movie. And I was like, he loves it, I can tell. Because <laughs> you weren't saying a word. And there is a scene with a character in a wedding gown. And oh as soon God. as she stepped up, I paused it. And I was like, there, that's why you needed to watch this. Oh I was like, that, God. this gown oh is like... It's like 21st century couture. It doesn't. Yes, there's yes. nothing medieval about that, it, but it was haute couture, that, stunning. That is like a Chanel couture. Uh, that's exactly uh, what gown. I said. Yeah, yeah. It, it, or it, McQueen maybe. No, I'd say Chanel. That's yeah, like that, that's that's what Chanel should be designing now. Exactly. It is so stunning and clever. And still feels raw and yes, weird and yes, old. Like, yes, yeah, okay, a yeah, woman in eight hundred, enriching someone with money. Yeah, um, it's just so beautiful. Sarita Chowdhury's costumes in it, which are, uh, you know, she and Dev Patel, and in fact, her whole she has uh, sisters and everything. They are all played by, um, you know, uh, South uh, East Asian act- actors and right, actresses. Right, right. So, 
But nothing is made of that. And she's actually claimed as, you know, she is uh, King Arthur's sister, and he's played by white actor Sean, very white actor Sean Harris. Um, so there's no, you know, there's no allusions to where they came from or where anything. Well, there is. That's my point, is that the these the women, which are all witches, they're all performing witchcraft together, pagan witchcraft, which makes their casting as women of color that much more interesting, I think. Um so they're doing all this pagan witchcraft. Not one of them are dressed in anything that could be called like Indian or Pakistani. Right, right. It's just, it's not that. But they are in these rich gold robes with bright colors in them that occasionally evoke saris without actually evoking them. Um, and it still looks like fantasy wear. It still looks like witch wear. That's the stuff that I just love. How about the scenes with the traveling puppet show? Oh my God! And the yes, people watching oh, it yes, year yes. round oh in the God. countryside. Oh my God! Oh my and God! And we've seen it. They've done scenes like that on it's, Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's like Rome, also Rome on HBO. They, but yes. I, I never saw it done so beautifully. Yes. I never, never, never movie, saw it done. The whole movie, it's I, I, yeah, the whole movie is so beautiful. I just cannot tell you how much it's I love like this. It's like you opening, film. like I said, you open this a book, storybook, with, a storybook with pop up characters, like they yeah. just pop up and and then you're looking at them and carefully and you know and then you, you turn the page you, and it's something yes, else yes and you turn the page it's something else that's how i felt yeah watching the movie. i think dev patel is first off he's beautiful in it he's a gorgeous Just man beautiful now. in uh-huh. it. um i think there's one like again like i said subtle nuanced sort of things at one point he is um posing for his basically his his portrait as a knight. Oh, yes. And uh, I just really thought this was clever. It is done exactly in like medieval style. It looks exactly like Dev Patel, except he's white. Did you notice that? Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. it just makes this subtle point about whitewashing history, about, you know, you don't know who these people, how white exactly. these people actually were exactly. when you're looking at their paintings. They were painted to look white. That's a very good point. I, I loved it. It was that. very, yeah. very mm-hmm. subtle because it, I was like, that's clearly Deb Patel, but his skin is as white as mine. And Everybody's that is deliberate. Great. Everybody's great in it. Yeah. All the, every, all the Oh, Alicia Vikander. Yes, she's excellent. She, she plays two roles, and I never thought she was yeah. a particularly charismatic she's great. actress. Everybody, she's great. Sean Harris uh, plays King, King Arthur. Arthur. He's also great. Uh, everybody, yeah, everybody, it's amazing. Yeah, really, really love it. I love every minute of it. It's a weird little film, and there is a. I won't give it away, but there is a specific moment in the film, and I pointed it out to you. I was like, "This is when I finally understood what it was." Uh-huh. Uh Where he encounters a thing, and you're like, "Oh." It's a poem. It's of a show. This is yeah. just so. It's so weird. Like if you're looking at it like a movie, you're like, why? Why is that scene there? And if you're looking at it like a chivalric poem, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, you're like, of course, of course, of course that's of what course. he's going to run into. You, he, every knight runs into that in King Arthur. So, um, yeah, cannot recommend it enough. I agree, totally but agree. I mean, you do have to go into it knowing that it is um, a series of pretty pictures. Uh, telling a story. It's still yes, telling it's a story. It's not meaningless. Yeah. It does yeah. tell a story. And it, you will think about it, especially the ending, what the ending actually means. But it doesn't follow linearly like you would expect. Um, he does. He goes on a journey. It's a six-day journey through an England that is full of just wild and magical things. And he encounters one right after another before he gets to the end of his journey. And at the end of his journey, typical hero's journey, he learned something very essential and true about himself. But what happens after that? The film kind of leaves up in the air, which is exactly Mm -hmm. how it should be done. Because again, these poems have different endings depending on who's telling them. So it's better not to have a definitive ending. 
Um, I loved it. I loved it no, so I much. It was movie. one of the most uniquely the beautiful films I've seen in years. I think these two movies we talked about, they're they're really great movies, yeah. and I highly recommend well, them. I highly recommend them both. Passing is on Netflix. You can watch streaming on Netflix. The Green Knight is available anywhere you you know to rent anywhere you want to rent movies. Like I said the other day, it was on sale on Prime Video for seven ninety nine to buy. Right. If you're interested, I have already watched it two and a half times, and I really think I'm just going to wait until our house is fully decorated, <laughs> and I'm going to watch it with Holly <laughs> yes, and everything because oh it is so. We have always had a tradition of watching uh, Lord, uh, Lord of the, of the Rings. Rings yes. uh, and I said one in a tweet last. I think last year. I don't think I've seen this movie without Christmas tree lights twinkling in the background, except for when I saw them all in the theater. And to me, I want the Green Knight to be a new Christmas. That's cute. I, That's cute. I it's love that. such a perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Lion in Winter. That's yes. another perfect oh God, Christmas yes, movie. Yeah. It's like You're, medieval one of your Christmas. Movies, exactly. Yeah. So it'd make a great companion to that, actually. All right, so that's our recommendations and our chatty, chatty, chatty stuff this week. Thank you once again for listening to our cartoon voices, and we'll be back next week with whatever crosses our eyes or crosses our desks. Yes. Until then, take care of yourselves. Love you. Mean it. Bye-bye. Bye.